Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. It's week 23, uh, June 5th through June 11th. We're uh, now full-fledged into the month of June as we uh, begin reading Acts chapter 22 through 26, our last full week in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, so it's been a it's been a good ride, hasn't it? And it still is. And um, we're learning about the the Lord's work, His continuing work through uh, His church, through His apostles, through His Word, by the person of the Spirit, in the lives of His people, and saving the lost. Thank you for joining us. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a great time of year. The sunshine is out, and in Michigan, we appreciate that, don't we? Um, so we're in Acts chapter 22 through 26 this week. And as we, uh, as you probably noticed from last week, whenever we ended, Paul had just been arrested in Jerusalem, right in the temple. Um, there was a mob there, right? And in, in some ways, isn't it interesting? There was, uh, people that really got upset about what Stephen did at the very beginning of Acts. And there was a, a mob, so to speak, that gathered together and asked, for, you know, they brought Paul before or brought Stephen before a trial. And who was there? And it was concerning that this guy doesn't stop speaking against the temple and against Moses. Right. That was the charge against Stephen. Well, look here what happens to Paul in chapter 21. Right. He comes there and then there are people that come crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people. I love I love the 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 uh, the phrase. He's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So notice again, similar charge in a sense. But before Paul was there helping persecute Stephen and was there whenever he was executed. But now, Paul, who had been there on the other side of this issue before in Jerusalem, is now in Jerusalem at the temple, arrested, and finds himself on the other side being treated like Stephen. Being treated like Stephen. It's, it's interesting, the relationship and the, the interrelationship between Stephen and Paul throughout the book of Acts. Well, now he's here, and he gives a speech, and he opens up in chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And he speaks in the Hebrew language and says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. And then he talks about his whole testimony about how a light came and shone and, and uh, he saw Christ, right? He, he tells them he's bearing witness to who Jesus Christ is. So as we look here at these chapters this week, we've really got two major divisions. Chapters 22 and 23 are about Paul's speech here in chapter 22, his arrest, his trial, all the events in Jerusalem that go on here. Uh, people are trying to kill him, right? Uh, trying to have Paul assassinated. Um, but then the Lord protects him, and Paul then goes to Caesarea for chapters 24 through 26. He will preach before Felix and such, and we'll see Paul's um, ministry there before eventually he says, I, I appeal to Caesar 
And this will send Paul eventually on to Rome. So really two basic locations where these things happen, 22 and 23 in Jerusalem, 24 through 26 in Caesarea. So this week again, let's see what we can think about and what we can learn from as we're reading through these passages of God's word this week um, here in Acts 22 through 26. So again, I want to open up in Acts 22, verse 2, and and there's a a verse there where Paul says, I could not see for the glory of that light. And this is a thing that Horatius Bonar, the Scottish minister, has about, and it's called the blinding glory, the blinding glory upon this verse. And he says this, there are many things which hinder our seeing an object. There is darkness. Night hides all objects far and near. There is distance. Distance may, if not too great, lend enchantment to the view, but too great a distance prevents vision. There is some intervening obstacle, as Hermon would be visible from Jerusalem were it not for the intercepting tableland of Benjamin. There is defective eyesight, dimness of vision, or scales growing over the eye. But none of these causes exist here. It is brightness, the splendor of the glory that prevents the eye from seeing. Saul is blinded with excess of light. It is here, as on the transfiguration hill. The greatness of the radiance overwhelms. The brightness is more blinding than the the darkness. Let us note, one, the light, and two, its effects. First, the light. It is not common light, nor does it operate in a common way. Let us see what it is and learn its history as given in Scripture, for much is said of it throughout the Word. Well, it is, first of all, light, a light, the light. The Word carries us back to Genesis, where first light is named, or rather to John 1.4, where we read, The life was the light of men. It is that which God calls light. Secondly, it is a great light. It possesses no common splendor. It is brightness intensified tenfold beyond all human brightness. It is contrasted not with darkness, but with the light of noon. It was beyond the brightness of the sun. Noon was to it as midnight. Three, it was a sudden light. It did not slowly dawn, but burst at once into splendor, showing its unlikeness to all common light, which comes slowly and goes slowly. Yet in its suddenness, it was not as a light as the lightning, for it did not depart in a moment. It blazed suddenly, but it remained till God's purpose was served. Fourthly, it was a spacious light, not like a star or sun, but a body or globe of light compassing them round about, as on the transfiguration hill. They were all of a sudden enveloped in a sphere of glory which shut out the sun. They were shut in by a glory more effulgent than the sun, shut out from the radiance of the sun by a radiance more glorious and divine. It was a tent of light which descended upon them and surrounded them. Fifthly, it was a light from heaven. It was from above, not from beneath. It was divine, not human, like the new Jerusalem itself, coming down from God out of heaven. It was not the light of sun or moon or stars, but a light from the very heaven of heavens, God's own light, an off-shining from the very glory of God. Such are the different expressions used to describe this light. Each of them is full of meaning and recalls some scriptural scene or illusion. The light was, no doubt, that which the Jews called the Shekinah, or glorious presence of Jehovah, dwelling in the tabernacle, 
the divine indwelling majesty. It was the very light, the sacred light, which their fathers knew so well, and of which Saul, as a Jew, had so often heard. It appeared at sundry times and in diverse forms for various purposes, now of mercy, now of judgment. It was this light that blazed out in the flaming sword, that appeared to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees, that was seen by Moses in the burning bush, that shone out in the pillar of fire and compassed the top of Sinai, that dwelt in the tabernacle and in the temple, that showed itself to Gideon's father, that kindled the fire on Solomon's altar, that was seen by Ezekiel departing and by Daniel in his visions, that for four hundred years left the earth, but reappeared at Bethlehem to the shepherds and to the wise men, at Christ's baptism, at the transfiguration, at Pentecost, at Stephen's martyrdom, and now at Saul's conversion, and afterwards at Patmos. Such is the history of this wondrous light, the representation of him who is light and in whom is no darkness at all, of him who is the light of the world, of him who is the brightness of Jehovah's glory. The history of that light is the Christology of Scripture. No doubt this visible physical light is connected with a higher and more spiritual light, the light which patriarchs saw and Paul saw, but was but a symbol of something far more glorious, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In every sense, these words are true. God is light. He covereth himself with light as with a garment. Here is the light of love, the light of life. It was this light that descended from heaven and met Saul, by the way. It was this light that was used by God to produce such mighty results. Of all things, light is the most powerful. Here we see its power. So he's talked about the light there, hasn't he, uh, Horatius Bonar? But now he talks about its effects here upon Paul. He says, secondly, its effects. The narrative presents several different results in the case of Saul. First of all, it blinds. Paul is struck blind. Scales cover his eyes. The light has destroyed them. It is the excess of light that has produced the blindness. Blinded by light, the light of heaven. Secondly, it illuminates. It does not blind in order to destroy the vision. It blinds in order to give clearer eyesight. The light which blinds also recalls the sight. Thirdly, it prostrates. Saul is stricken to the ground. The vision is overwhelming. Man cannot stand before it. He breaks down like Daniel and like John. There remains no more strength. Though all was in that light that appeared to Saul, the commandment came. Sin revived, and I died. Fourthly, it bewilders. It was here in the case of Saul worse than darkness, in the bewilderment produced. He needs now a guide. He thought he knew the way. Now he must tread to another hand, trust to another hand. Fifthly, it guides. We do not see this here, but in Saul's after history. This is his lamp. Such are the results of the surpassing glory. From this outward operation on men, we learn the inward. For doubtless there were both these cooperating in the case of Paul. The first effect of the light of the gospel is often to blind and to strike down. The second is to enlighten and to lift up and to heal. It is with divine light that our dark souls must come into contact. Till this takes place, we are still unrenewed. Still, Saul's, not Paul's. This light must enter the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It must not be heard of merely or play round us. 
it must enter in. It must shine in our hearts. God is light and God is love. We must know both of these things. The cross is the great exhibition of these. It is the true interpreter of the mind of God and the revealer of his character. In the New Jerusalem, this divine light, both material and spiritual, shines forth. The Lamb is the light thereof. That's really interesting. He talks in kind of just a meditation, isn't it, upon that whole truth about the light that shone around Paul, or Saul of Tarsus later became known as Paul. And I really like the part there, right, where he talks about the history of this light, how from the Old Testament on into the New, to Bethlehem, to Christ's transfiguration, and now to Paul's own, uh, Saul of Tarsus, his own conversion experience, um, that Shekinah glory, that radiant glory, that beaming fullness of, of God's bright glory shining all around Paul and uh, drawing to him, drawing Paul to himself, breaking him down, but also then building, building him back up. So Paul gives his testimony here. And uh, is speaking before the, the to the Jewish people. He's arrested. Paul reminds them that he's a Roman citizen. He has to speak before the council in chapter 23. And then eventually there is a plot to kill Paul, a plot um, to have him uh, executed, uh, to have him uh, taken out, so to speak. And so then he goes and he is uh, taken uh, to Felix, the governor at Caesarea. And so Paul makes his way and comes to Caesarea. And it is eventually there that Paul gives and, and talks. He has to uh, defend himself right to the governor. Um, Paul speaks and he opens up in verse uh, 10, uh, chapter 24. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it was not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and, the, and written in the prophets. Uh, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul there says that he is speaking about something that everyone agrees upon, at least this basic fact that there is a resurrection to come, a resurrection to come. Um, and so I want to read a little bit now from a Spurgeon sermon here, where he talks a bit about this resurrection from the dead this resurrection from the dead that, that uh, Paul was, was focusing upon. This is a sermon that he, called, that he preached. It's called, unsurprisingly, The Resurrection of the Dead. Um, and it's based off of this verse. He says this, Reflecting the other day upon the sad state of the churches at the present moment, I was led to look back to apostolic times and to consider wherein the preaching of the present day differed from the preaching of the apostles. I remarked the vast difference in their style from the set and formal oratory of the present age. I remarked that the apostles did not take a text when they preached, nor did they confine themselves to one subject, much less to any place of worship. But I find that they stood up in any place and declared from the fullness of their heart what they knew of Jesus Christ. But the main difference I observed was in the subjects of their preaching. 
Now that stop real quick. That's an interesting thing. He says the main difference between present preaching at his time, and I think we could probably say the same for us today, and what the apostles did, well, the main difference, he says, is in what they preached, the topics, the subjects of their preaching. Spurgeon continues, surprised I was when I discovered that the very staple of the preaching of the apostles was the resurrection of the dead. I found myself to have been preaching the doctrine of the grace of God, to have been upholding free election, to have been leading the people of God as well as I was enabled into the deep things of his word. But I was surprised to find that I had not been copying the apostolic fashion half as nearly as I might have done. The apostles, when they preached, always testified concerning the resurrection of Jesus and the consequent resurrection of the dead. It appears that the Alpha and the Omega of their gospel was the testimony that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. When they chose another apostle in the room of Judas, who had become apostate, Acts one twenty two, they said, One must be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So that the very office of an apostle was to be a witness of the resurrection. And well did they fulfill their office. When Peter stood up before the multitude, he declared unto them that David spoke of the resurrection of Christ. When Peter and John were taken before the council, the great cause of their arrest was that the rulers were grieved because they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead, Acts 4.2. When they were set free, after having been examined, it is said, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Acts 4.33. It was this which stirred the curiosity of the Athenians when Paul preached among them. We talked about that last week, didn't we? They said, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And this moved the laughter of the Areopagites. For when he spoke of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Truly did Paul say when he stood before the council of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And equally truly did he constantly assert, If Christ be not risen from the dead, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. The resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the righteous is a doctrine which we believe, but which we too seldom preach or care to read about. Though I have inquired of several booksellers for a book specially upon the subject of the resurrection, I have not yet been able to purchase one of any sort whatever. And when I turn to Dr. Owen's works, which are a most invaluable storehouse of divine knowledge, containing much that is valuable on almost every subject, I could find, even there, scarcely more than the slightest mention of the resurrection. It has been set down as a well-known truth, and therefore has never been discussed. Heresies have not risen up respecting it. It would almost have been a mercy if, the, if there had been. For whenever a truth is contested by heretics, the Orthodox fight strongly for it, and the pulpit resounds with it every day. I am persuaded, however, that there is much power in this doctrine. And if I preach it this morning, you will see that God will own the apostolic preaching, and there will be conversions. I intend putting it to the test now to see whether there will be whether there be not something which we can perceive cannot perceive at present in the resurrection of the dead which is capable of moving the hearts of men and bringing them into subjection to the gospel of our lord and savior jesus christ so right away spurgeon this is interesting isn't it by the way and it's something you don't think about maybe but 
He's emphasizing the fact that we don't preach the resurrection as we should. But this was the constant theme of the apostles in their ministry in Acts. And Paul talks about it in his epistles. And it's a good question to ask yourself, what role does the resurrection play in my life? What role does it play in the way I think about Christianity? Um, Do I think about the resurrection every day? Um, The apostles, I probably think they did. Um, They were always talking about the resurrection of the dead. Uh, Spurgeon continues, there are very few Christians who believe the resurrection of the dead. You may be surprised to hear that, but I should not wonder if I discovered that you yourself have doubts on the subject. By the resurrection of the dead is meant something very different from the immortality of the soul. That every Christian believes, and therein is only on a level with the heathen who believes it too. The light of nature is sufficient to tell us that the soul is immortal, so that the infidel who doubts it is a worse fool even than a heathen. For he, before revelation was given, had discovered it. There are some faint glimmerings in men of reason which teach that the soul is something so wonderful that it must endure forever. But the resurrection of the dead is quite another doctrine, dealing not with the soul, but with the body. The doctrine is that this actual body in which I now exist is to live with my soul, that not only is the vital spark of heavenly flame to burn in heaven, but the very censer in which the incense of my life does smoke is holy unto the Lord and is to be preserved forever. The spirit, everyone confesses, is eternal. But how many there are who deny that the bodies of men will actually start up from their graves at the great day? Many of you believe you will have a body in heaven, but you think it will be an airy, fantastic body, instead of believing that it will be a body like to this, flesh and blood, although not the same kind of flesh, for all flesh is not the same flesh, a solid, substantial body, even such as we have here. And there are yet fewer of you who believe that the wicked will have bodies in hell, for it is gaining ground everywhere that there are to be no positive torments for the damned in hell to affect their bodies, but that it is to be a metaphorical fire, metaphorical brimstone, metaphorical chains, metaphorical torture. But if ye were Christians as ye profess to be, ye would believe that every mortal man who ever existed shall not only live by the immortality of his soul, but his body shall live again that the very flesh in which he now walks the earth is as eternal as the soul and shall exist forever. That is the peculiar doctrine of Christianity. The heathens never guessed or imagined such a thing. And consequently, when Paul spoke of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, which proves that they understood him to speak of the, of the resurrection of the body. For they would not have mocked had he only spoken of the immortality of the soul that having been already proclaimed by Plato and Socrates and received with reverence. We are now about to preach that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. We shall consider first the resurrection of the just, and secondly, the resurrection of the unjust. Now, I won't continue uh, reading in detail too much of this, but I just thought that was, that's a very helpful introduction, isn't it, to what Paul is doing here. He says, I am, the reason why I'm here is because I hope in the resurrection of the dead. And Paul is, does that in Acts um, uh, 23 when he's before the uh, religious leaders, right? Because he pits the Pharisees against the Sadducees. Because the Sadducees said, there is no resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees, actually, of which Paul had been one, affirmed that and said, no, 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 no. There is a resurrection from the dead to come. And Paul here says, 
I am, I, the whole, everything comes down to the fact that I'm in here for the resurrection of the dead um, and such. And, and so maybe we would just do us well to, to be shaken a bit and just to think, how often do I think about the resurrection? Um, how often does that, that come up in my thinking about Christianity, about Jesus Christ, um, in my sharing with other people? Do I talk to other people about the resurrection? Or do I simply talk about eternal life as if it's just simply the soul that lives on? Um, or do I tell people, do you want to be resurrected? Not simply spiritually, but physically. Um, good, good questions. So he says, he talks first about the resurrection of the just, and he offers proofs and talks about the, um, that this was the, the faith of the saints from the earliest periods of time. He talks about Abraham and David and how they were looking forward to the resurrection uh, from, from, from the dead. This was, this was the unvarying faith of these men. Of, of what they, they were hoping for. He says the patriarch Job was a firm believer in it, for he said in that oft-repeated text, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. And maybe it's helpful for us to remind ourselves that the Old Testament saints believed in the resurrection. Now, they may have not known about the resurrection of Christ, but they were hoping in a resurrection to come. He points out a second proof of it from the translation of Enoch and Elijah to heaven. You remember, they go body and soul uh, into heaven miraculously. He also uh, talks about the, uh, um, the angels who watched over the bones of the, of the saints. He talks about the, from Jude, I guess, right, where Mark, Michael the archangel contends with the devil about the body of Moses. Um, and so, and he, he brings up that, it says, certainly it tells us that the body of Moses was watched over by a great archangel. The devil thought to disturb that body, but Michael contended with it, with him about it. Now, would there be a contention about that body if it had been of no value? Would Michael contend for that, which was only to be the food of worms? So, good question. He talks about the resurrections that have already taken place. He uh, brings up uh, Lazarus. Uh, the daughter of Jairus and such, right? These are things that are kind of pointing us forward to the resurrection uh, to come. And, and he says this, but the master argument with which we close our proof is that Christ rose from the dead and verily his people shall. The chapter which we read at the commencement of the service is, to, is, a, is proof to a demonstration that if Christ rose from the dead, all his people must, that if there be no resurrection, then is Christ not risen. But I will not dwell on this long on but I will not long dwell on this proof, because I know you all feel its power, and there is no need for me to bring it out clearly. As Christ actually rose from the dead, flesh and blood, so shall we. Christ was not a spirit when he rose from the dead, his body could be touched. And so he continues to talk about the Christ and how he rose from the dead and how he's um, you know, he he rose and this is our this is our hope. Um, and this is what we're looking forward to. And he also brings up then the resurrection of the wicked and how the wicked are also raised. Remember that. And that's, he points out the wicked will be in hell in bodies, uh, not simply in their souls, but in their bodies. And anyway, I'll leave the rest of that sermon there for you to peruse if you're interested in it. Um, but it's a good question to think about. The resurrection of the dead that Paul is contending for, is that at the center of our Christianity? Something to consider. Well, then a little later, though, down in these verses, 
we see Paul talking to uh, you know with Phoenix with uh, Felix, and um, we read in verse twenty-two. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, "When Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case." And then eventually in verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Uh, William Arnaud, that guy that we've been talking about, uh, has a section here about Paul and Felix here and um, think about Paul going before Felix and speaking to him and uh, and what this must have been like. He says this, and William Arnaud does about these verses. He says, There are in the scriptures certain grand outstanding portions which seem to bulk more largely and shine more brightly than the rest. In the Old Testament, the 23rd Psalm and the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, in the Gospels, the interviews with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, the parables of the sower, the shepherd, and the prodigal. In the Acts, the Gospel preached to the Ethiopian by Philip and to the jailer by Paul, the Gospel preached to Felix here and rejected. These are specimens of words that gave that gave themselves more that grave themselves more deeply on the memory of Bible students and come up more frequently for use. Nor is it either unlike the ways of God or incongruous with the nature of the case that some point should excel in beauty and power where all is divine. On the earth's surface, some mountains rear their heads into the sky far above the valleys and the little hills that bound them, and some stars are superior to others in breadth and brightness. To recognize practically such preeminence does not disparage the body of revelation any more than the earth that bears the mountains or the skies that hold forth the stars." To a thirsting soul, these notable portions are like wells by the wayside. The traveler drank from them in succession the first time he trod the path, perhaps fifty years ago. But if he is living still, and still on pilgrimage, with the same hot sand beneath his feet, and the same hot sun above his head, he will drink from each well-remembered spring as he passes it, with as much delight as on the first day he discovered its refreshing water. He will not turn away his head with the complaint, I have known these wells so long and tasted of them so often that I am wearied of them now. Therefore, spring, O wells, and as long as there is a desert and drink, O pilgrims, as long as you are thirsty. For the princes of the people dig them, David and Isaiah and Peter and John and Matthew and Luke, and drink, reader, if thou art a wayfarer on the same path. Drink at this spring in the desert yet once more as you pass. The governor, indolent, vicious, self-pleasing, postponed decision in Paul's case, and after the trial relapsed into his pleasures. But the pleasures, long continued and not much varied, palled on the taste of the voluptory. To relieve their labor, he and his wife Drusilla determined one day to hear a sermon from the distinguished preacher who happened to be their prisoner. Accordingly, a message is conveyed to Paul that the governor and his party desired to hear him concerning the faith in Jesus. This message sent to the prison is all the heavens different from the cry formerly raised in the prison. What must I do to be saved? But Paul counts the occasion good and determines to occupy his his opportunity. Man proposes, but God disposes. What Felix begins in sport may end in earnest. The imprisoned apostle will endeavor to strike a blow for the kingdom of Christ in the high places of the earth. 
The auditors on this occasion, although they occupied a high place in society, were both of the baser sort. They were stained especially with cruel injustice towards others and gross impurity in their own persons. These specific vices, well known to the preacher, determine no doubt the form of his discourse. When he speaks to a large miscellaneous audience whose characters he does not know, he must draw his bow at a venture and hope it will hit some enemy of the king. But when, as in this case, he sees clearly his object, he will take deliberate aim. Accordingly, in making justice and personal purity the chief themes of his address, Paul was coolly covering his man. He preached to the times and the place and the people. Taking his stand generally on the eternal law of God, he selected the two specific aspects of it that cut directly into the consciences of his auditors. He will employ the law as a fire of coals piled on the hard ore of the governor's heart. If so be, he may make it flow down. If he sees it melting, he will quickly receive it into the mold of the gospel for pardon and newness of life. It is a mistake to suppose that the discourse, so briefly reported here, consists of three consecutive heads. Its logic is better than such an arrangement supposes. The sermon consisted of two heads and an application. The two heads, righteousness and temperance, are meant to hedge in the governor so that his conscience cannot escape either on the right hand or on the left, and the application, the judgment to come, is sent forward like a flood of fire between these two walls to secure conviction and utterly to slay the old man in the heart of that chief sinner. The division by the same apostle in Titus 2.12, soberly, righteously, and godly, is in substance the same, although the two main branches are given in the reverse order. With perfect clearness and precision, Paul divides the law into two parts. First, its aspect outwards as bearing on other people, and second, its aspect inwards as bearing on ourselves. Towards other men, it demands justice. Within ourselves, it demands purity. These are indicated by the terms righteousness and temperance in the reported discourse. Righteousness needs no explanation. It means what it says, rightness, justice, in thought, word, and deed towards all, towards God and towards man. Temperance, the other English word, needs to be defined. It is not employed here in the modern and narrow sense of mere freedom from all excess and the use of intoxicants. It means that and much more. Its classical and New Testament signification is much wider than that which is ordinarily bears in our own language. It means freedom from all that defiles. It demands personal purity on all sides. In this case, although it did not exclude what we ordinarily mean by intemperance. Most certainly, the, licentious, the licentiousness of the hearers was much more prominently before the preacher's mind and much more specifically designated by his word. We know how Paul would bring home the word on both sides. He would keep nothing back. He strikes with a will. He thrusts the sword up to the hilt. He has no compassion, for he knows that compassion in this place is unfaithfulness to a fellow sinner's soul. Felix is compelled to listen, and what is much more, Felix is compelled to listen with secret application of the dreadful word to himself. As the preacher advanced from point to point, the conscience of the governor, as the voice of God in his breast, murmured, Thou art the man. On the one side he is unrighteous, on the other he is impure. 
and when the judgment to come was pressed forward, he felt as if an angel with a flaming sword were approaching to destroy him, while he had no power to escape. Felix is like a man chained to the ground in the middle of the Mount Cenus tunnel. Above, below, and on either side, he is shut in. Without a figure, the barriers on all sides are nothing else and nothing less than the everlasting hills. While he is chained to the spot in that dark avenue, he looks along the gloomy telescope tube, and lo, in the distance, a fiery red spark, like a fixed star. It is like an eye, all-seeing and angry, glaring on him from afar. But as he gazes on it, he perceives that it is growing larger. And oh, horror, it is advancing. It is coming with express speed. It is the fiery engine rushing on, rushing over him. Felix trembled, and well he might. He has reached that point in spiritual experience on which the Philippian jailer stood when he called for a light and sprang in trembling. But alas, he does not seek relief from the terror of conviction where the official in Philippi saw it and found it. Instead of, what must I do to be saved? It is, go thy way for this time. Two men may be led by nearly the same path into those soul pangs which accompany conviction of sin. And yet the two men may follow opposite courses in life and meet opposite rewards in eternity. It is not how you fall into the pains of conviction that fixes your state, but how you get out of them. Not how you were wounded, but how you are healed is the turning point of the loss or saving of the soul. Instead of seeking healing and accepting Christ as Savior, Felix sought ease by stifling the preacher's voice, quenching the spirit who spoke in the preacher. But here a question occurs. As far as the report of the sermon goes, there is no mention of Christ and no offer of pardon through his blood. Felix received on this occasion no such blessed word as that which was addressed to the jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. This difference is real, and it is remarkable. The reason of it, when discovered, throws a flood of light on Paul's method as a preacher of Christ. He seems to have preached the law and nothing more to Felix and Drusilla. But he would have preached the gospel too if they had permitted him. He began with the law in order to work conviction of sin, ready to apply the healing balm of the moment that the conscience was, was touched. The sermon, as far as it went, was intended to inflict a wound, and the foolish hearer, when he felt the pain, interrupted the speaker and lost his opportunity. Felix wanted to play at preaching, but Paul meant earnest work. Felix intended to amuse himself during a leisure hour. Paul tried to save a soul from death. Thus these two were at cross-purposes. But we are sure from the whole character and life of the apostle that he would have offered free pardon in Christ to the chief sinner who sat before him if he had not been abruptly silenced ere his work was done. That is a sobering reminder, isn't it, to us um, of uh, the conviction of the law, but also our, our um, we just to run to Christ, to be willing to receive the condemnation and the conviction of the law of God in our lives, and then to go run and run as fast as we can to Jesus Christ for the salvation and the forgiveness of our souls. And Felix here, as far as we know, did not do that. He said, go away for this time. 
it's a good sobering reminder to us, um, to each of us, that we we don't trifle with preaching. And um, this is serious business, isn't it? It's eternal business um, that we're, we're doing here. Lastly, so Paul here is preaching. He appeals to Caesar. He comes before Agrippa and Bernice. Um, he uh, tells of his conversion. And uh, here I want to read a thing that William Arnaud has here uh, from Acts 26. And he's taking it from uh, verses 1 through 16. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And uh, this is a section that William Arnaud calls the gospel fulfills the law. And this is the last reading we'll have for today. Paul's address before Festus and Agrippa is recorded with considerable fullness. It is in form as well as substance an apology for Christianity, adapted to the audience and the times. In determining his ground, he adheres closely to his former line of defense. He does not demand the sanction of imperial law for the introduction of a new religion. He takes a stand on the fact that the Jewish religion is a lawful worship and argues that the gospel, being a legitimate development of Judaism, is already sanctioned. His language is not, tolerate the religion which I proclaim, but my religion is already tolerated by the laws of the state. The first premise of his argument, the Jewish religion is tolerated in the empire, was not disputed. The second, I am of the Jewish religion, is the point on which the great apologist on this occasion puts forth his strength. This, although debated in a Roman court, was a question between Jews and Christians. The Jews accused the Christians of having apostatized from the tolerated faith. It was Paul's business, therefore, to refute this accusation to prove that in accepting Christ, he did not renounce Moses, and so make good his claim to the protection of the government under existing laws. Thus, the form which the question that day assumed makes the apostles' reasoning on it very precious to the church in all ages. Circumstances led him to show that the gospel sprang necessarily from the law, as the stalks and ears of harvest from the seed of spring. Starting from the notorious fact that in his youth he was himself a Jew, he proves by a narrative of the case that he had never changed, that his progress, instead of being an apostasy, had been the development and glory of all the Old Testament revelation. In this aspect, the progress of revelation is somewhat like the process of a plant, progress of a plant that grows from seed. The first stage is an appearance very different from the second. The leaves subsequently unfolded are not a mere repetition of their predecessors. Suppose a person altogether unacquainted with the processes of vegetation had obtained some seed, which he believes to be precious, from a foreign land. He sows it in his garden and watches it springing in growth. After having seen its first leaves spread out, he is called from home. The plants are left under the charge of a skillful and faithful servant, and the owner does not see them again for a month. On his return, he visits the garden to mark the progress of his valued foreign plants. He finds them growing indeed on the same spot, but entirely changed. These are not my plants, he exclaims. I left them with leaves smooth and almost circular. These leaves are downy, corrugated, and sharply indented on all sides. He thinks the gardener has removed the original germs and substituted others of a different kind in their place. The mistake is due to the ignorance of the proprietor. The servant has been faithful to his charge. 
The owner ignorantly mistakes a natural development for a dishonest change. The Sanhedrin represents the prejudiced householder, and Paul stands for the faithful steward. The gospel which Paul preached was not indeed a mere reproduction of the Mosaic Institutes. It was the growth of that germ into foliage, flowers, and fruit. All the sacrifices are promises. The Sanhedrin, in their blind zeal, would grasp these promise buds and hold them tight and never permit them to open. Paul would leave these precious buds free under the sun and air of heaven and watch to see whereunto they would grow. Paul held fast the hope of the promise. It was not a new or strange doctrine that he proclaimed. It was the promise made to the fathers. He was aware while he spoke that his doctrine involved the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead in general and the resurrection of Christ in particular are bound up together. To deny the possibility of a resurrection involves the rejection of Christ. For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not risen. There is reason to believe that the Herodian family, of whom Agrippa was, at that time, the head, had imbibed Sadducean views. As the king enjoyed, by favor of the Roman emperor, the right of nominating the high priest, the Sadducees, under this ancient specimen of lay patronage, would probably obtain the most, most of the chief preferments. Paul plainly assumes that Agrippa was a Sadducee, and endeavors to change the king's dark belief. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? The actual resurrection of Jesus, when accepted, demolishes the foundation stone of the Sadducean system. Once more, on a great public arena, the apostle narrates his own conversion. He relies mightily on this as an instrument of, in his ministry. In order to provide a fulcrum for his lever, he carefully notes at the outset that he too was once against Jesus of Nazareth. And here, the grand natural character of Saul emerges in striking outlines. What he thought to be his duty, that he resolutely performed. He thought the disciples of Jesus were a sect of deceivers, and therefore he determined to hunt them down. This is the essence of persecution in every age. It is a conviction lodged in a strong but unenlightened mind that those who refuse compliance with the authorized orthodoxy should be put to death. It is that grim sense of duty, combined with a perverted religious belief that has done all the killing of the saints. While Paul was an unbeliever, he thought it right to put the disciples of Christ to death, and he acted on his conviction. But when he became himself a disciple, he changed not only his side, but his method. After he became a Christian, he believed that the unbelieving Jews erred fatally in their faith. But we never hear a whisper of any desire on his part to put them in prison or to take away their lives. Christ made him free. And when he was delivered from condemnation, his law was love. This experience has been repeated in more recent times. As long as the superstition of Rome was predominant in Europe, it put heretics to death. When the Reformation triumphed, argument came in place of the stake. It is remarkable how directly contrary are the maxims of Rome to the precepts of the gospel. See a specific instruction to Christians how they ought to treat those who maintain erroneous doctrine. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. Paul says, exclude him from your communion. Rome says, burn him at a stake. We obtain an incidental hint here regarding the methods of torture adopted by ancient Jewish inquisitors. I compelled them to blaspheme. 
It is not said that Christians under that cruel compulsion actually blasphemed the holy name whereby they were called. The persecutor endeavored to force them to a denial of the Lord, but he did not succeed. The heathen magistrates during the first three centuries adopted precisely the same plan with the same result. The martyrs suffered, but would not sin. Now, you can tell by reading William Arnaud, maybe um, you get it, you might have noticed um, some of the things he was talking about with uh, Roman Catholicism uh, and uh, his perspective on it. And obviously, Arnaud was writing in the 1800s. And while we believe, as convinced Protestants, that Rome is, um, while, while they believe in the Trinity, they have um, embraced uh, horribly false doctrine in their understanding of salvation, their understanding of justification, of how someone is saved and comes into a right relationship with God. Um, we disagree with them upon the role of Scripture and tradition. They hold Scripture and tradition to be equal. We hold them. We hold Scripture alone to be the only final authority for all faith and practice. We do not believe in the, you know, the Pope and his role as the, as the Roman Catholic Church would say, as the universal pastor uh, of the whole church. We do not believe that. Um, so I think uh, he mentions about the stake and such, and, and uh, he is talking. So I just I want people to know that he's talking about that in the 1800s. Uh, we still have huge disagreements with uh, Roman Catholics. Um, we, uh, we love them, but we, we have very big disagreements and it would be dishonest to say that we don't have disagreements, um, with them. Um, and they're not small. They're very big ones. Um, in fact, we would say they go to the very heart of the faith, um, that we confess. Um, and we would hope they would say the same thing as well. Um, and so anyway, um, but he, his point overall though is well taken, isn't it? that um, the, the religion that Paul was professing, he claimed was the old-time religion of the Old Testament. And whereas Paul before persecuted Christians, once he became a Christian, he did not go about and persecute Jews um, and people who were unbelievers in Christianity. And we would do well to remind ourselves of that as well, that our religion is not spread by the sword it is spread by the word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's Paul. He's getting ready to go to Rome. And uh, we're going to go ship sailing uh, next week in chapter 27. So uh, that should be fun. And then we will be opening up into the book of Romans. Uh, one of the top books, probably most influential books, um, need to know books of the whole Bible, the book of Romans. So thank you for listening to this. I hope it's been encouraging to you and I'll see you next time. Take care. God bless.